Kia ora everyone, welcome on to Seeds Podcast. At the recent Seeds Conference, we had Brienne West and Esha Chabra sharing about regenerative business. I really enjoyed their discussion, and they're both former Seeds guests, so it was great to have them united and discussing things together. We're going to get straight into this discussion, but if you enjoy it, then why not share it with others so that they can find the content as well? And a thank you to Jamie Small, who was the MC in this room, and that's who you hear at the start of this conversation. Uh, it's time to talk about regenerative business. This is a really cool topic, I think. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what our speakers, Brianne West and Esha Chabra, have to say about it. Uh, Brianne's the founder of Ethic, uh, a regenerative business with a product that I think many of us will be familiar with. It's certainly present in our house. Um, and Esha is a journalist who wrote the book Working to Restore about regenerative business around the world. So both of our speakers are certainly experts on the subject. Uh, welcome to you both, and um, yeah, you can get started. Thank you so much for that introduction. So the way that uh, we thought we might structure this is talk a little bit about Brianne's business background and how she's actually built this regenerative brand, which is still, I think, a bit rare in the world. And then we can dive into broader discussions about what does regenerative business mean? You know, what are the kind of challenges that they face and how does it distinguish itself from all the other movements that are going on in this space? So, Brianne, do you want to start with the folks who might not be familiar with Ethic? Just a little quick kind of update of how you started it, how long it took you, and then where you're at now, because I understand you've moved on a little bit. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, thank you for mm-hmm. having me. And uh Hopefully, all of you have heard of Atik. Maybe, maybe. Uh, so for those who don't know, Atik is a solid cosmetics company. Uh, so instead of liquid shampoo and conditioner, we create solid bar versions. That way we do away with plastic bottles. And um, everything inside it is sustainably sourced, fair trade, palm oil free. Obviously, there's no animal testing. But if I'm honest, I think what we do is actually the least important thing or the least exciting thing that we do because how we operate, I believe, is more where the regenerative, genuinely sustainable business comes in. So when I was uh, 26, 27-ish, 24, I don't know, I was still at university and um, I'd started a couple of businesses and they taught me a lot, but I got very bored. And the reason I I sort of came to the realization that business, the way we operate business is fundamentally flawed. It's incredibly exploitative. It's incredibly unsustainable. And I don't really want to have anything to do with it. So I wanted to create a company that not only displaced a wasteful product, but also operated in a way that was uh, equitable and sustainable. And eventually I came to start using the word regenerative, although that's been more recent. Uh, so I started in my kitchen, uh, mixing up a whole bunch of stuff, no real idea what I was doing. I was a biochemist. I didn't just make stuff. I'm not burning people's hair off, I promise. And I um, just started putting together policies and procedures that were a little bit different. And I was constantly told, this isn't possible. This isn't going to work. Your business won't be financially sound. Because one of the things I wanted to put in from day one was a charitable program. Now, I had absolutely no idea. This is just an example. I had no idea what level of charitable stuff to structure. Because um, startups typically don't have a big charitable structure because we don't have any money. Startups are not renowned for being flushed with cash. Uh, And it was actually the B Corp assessment process that taught me that best practice as it stands currently is about 2% of sales or 20% of profit if if your startup happens to be profitable, which we were eventually. Uh, So uh, over the last uh, 11 years, it has grown into a big organization-ish 
uh, 22 countries. We've displaced 30 million plastic bottles, which is a pretty cool number, but still shy from the half a billion that's our next goal. And most importantly, I think, is we have changed the industry. And I know that sounds probably quite arrogant, but 10 years ago, shampoo bars weren't on shelves. Now you go into almost every store from your local dairy to supermarkets and there are shampoo bars everywhere. And that's true of many, many countries now. It is it is a um, just where they weren't, now they are. And I think that's indicative of the demand that consumers have built for better products that have far less impact on the planet. That sort of summed up a very long journey yeah. giving a lead into it. Absolutely. And what are you working on now? What's taking up most of your time now? Uh, so I a little bit involved with take still, but not much. Uh, so I'm building uh, a couple of things. One is, uh, it was supposed to be a side hustle called Business But Better, but it's helping other entrepreneurs who are trying to have mission-led, or trying to build mission-led businesses, help them grow and scale. Uh, but the, the the bigger one of the two is something called Incredibles, which is going to I always feel a little bit silly saying it, but we're going to revolutionize the soda industry. So it's going to be instead of you buy uh, a bottle of Coke in your supermarket, uh, all you need to buy is a couple of tablets wrapped in home compostable cardboard packaging. You drop them in your glass, soda. You've got flavored water. You've got lemon, lime and bitters, whatever it is you drink, we will have an option for. And that will launch in April, which I'm very excited about. And it will have all the values of a teak, um, if not more so, but um, a bigger slightly scarier industry so this like crusade to get rid of plastic is still very much a part of you and what you're doing um I think it's it's, absolutely I mean I think what's interesting about brand stories that you've been doing this long before it was trendy I mean I've been writing about sustainable businesses and now regenerative businesses for about a decade and you really were one of the early pioneers in your space like, I mean, it, this is not still business as normal, even though it should be, right? And so why not? I mean, what are the main hurdles that companies face? Most people talk about cost. Are there others that you faced as well? I think everybody is concerned that you can't be uh, ethical and profitable. Uh, it's the number one. And obviously, businesses are not here to be nonprofits, and uh, they are here to have returns for investors and shareholders, and that's understandable. Uh, but they are not mutually exclusive. It is absolutely possible to be ethical and finite and sustainable in every sense of the word. And a teak is an example of that, but there are many, many other examples of which you will have written a multitude about. Actually, really recommend Esha's book. It's a really good read. Um, uh, it's And it covers a lot of <laughs> doing something very, very similar. There you go. So I think the biggest thing is cost, but then I think the next one is a lack of know-how. So I read a statistic, I think, on LinkedIn the other day that said 83% of business owners want to be more sustainable but don't know how. I struggle with that statistic a little bit. There's an awful lot of information out there and how to at least get started, right? Uh, But at least they want to be so i think there is there is two there is two big issues one is we can't afford to do it we've got to be big and successful and established and profitable first before we start any of these initiatives not true you can do it from day one and then there's the other part is i don't know how to go how to go about it there's not enough information there's not enough learning um how do we how do we start and my answer to that is always you start how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time so the thing i always suggest people start doing is measuring their impact measure 
your carbon emissions. And that's not difficult, nor is it expensive. There are plenty of organizations who will do it for you. Yeah. The other thing is also that, okay, so you designed with this model from the very beginning. If you're a company that already has a product that you're selling that is not regenerative or sustainable, making that shift is really challenging because you have to then shift the supply chain. You have to shift mindsets of people that are involved. Um, what's been your experience with that? I mean, have you seen other organizations do this successfully? And is there any tips for those who might be in that situation? You've got to get people on board and that's the hardest bit. But I am finding that more and more people are, more and more people who sit on boards, more and more people who perhaps started a business without thinking that this this sort of concept was an issue, they are more and more interested in changing the way they do business. So the first thing is you've got to get people on board, otherwise you're just pushing shit uphill. And actually probably, and I can't believe I'm going to use this example, but probably one of the best examples is Unilever. Uh, they've had a succession of CEOs who are actually trying to move the needle for one of the biggest organizations in the world. And I am far from saying that Unilever is a regenerative or sustainable organization. I am not saying that at all. I am saying they are putting in place some seriously impressive policies and they are changing some of the ways they have done things and continue to do things like the way they, they no longer do quarterly reporting in the same way that so many corporates do because they focus on other things that are more important, like the impact they have. And um, that goes to show you it is possible to effectively move the direction of a massive ship, right? Unilever really is one of the world's largest organizations with hundreds of, well, tens of brands. And if they can do it, uh, it certainly gives me faith that a, a lot of other companies could work a little bit harder, not looking at yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great example. I mean, there are some larger organizations. Nestle is another one that was kind of vilified for a long time, and rightly so. Um, but they're slowly, slowly, you know, making that move in the other direction. Um, the other question I get often, which is, you know, what's the difference between sustainable and regenerative? Like, how is regenerative business really much more different? My take on it is this, and Brian, you can add to this or correct me, but I think of it almost like a, a it's layer upon layer of impact in your business. It's not just something that you're doing in one aspect of the company. I think of it almost like a, you know, a multi-layered cake. It's like layer upon layer upon layer, and then the whole, the whole thing is nice. So um, sustainability for a long time has been more of like one department, one silo within an organization. And sometimes the poor sustainability team have to like convince everybody else, right? That this is something that we should do. Whereas regenerative businesses, you're really thinking about it in every aspect of the company. And that's why what you mentioned with B Corp, like B Corp is an exercise that kind of helps you do that to begin with. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Uh, everyone who has said I have a sustainable business is usually product focused. And uh, that's, Sure, it's what you sell and it's a big part of your business, but it's not the only part of your business. To be truly sustainable, you have to, and, and look, I'm very idealistic about these things. I appreciate that. But to be truly sustainable, everything you do in your business, you must be able to repeat ad nauseum without causing any further impact on the planet, right? That is a tall order. Regenerative is the next level up. So again, yes, as you say, it's it's considering everything that your business does from operations to supply chain. Supply chain is a big one uh, to what your product does. And I personally think it involves product end of life, but people argue with me on that one. Uh, but it, it means giving back more than you take. So regenerative takes the step from sustainability to doing more than you take. It's um, mm -hmm. 
it's just that that little bit extra because let's be frank if all we if all businesses suddenly became sustainable the status quo we're currently at it's it's not good we, we don't want to stay here we want to rehabilitate forests and ecosystems and our climate you know, sustainability is a hard goal but we need to be aiming that little bit higher still we're just a tall yeah order. that's exactly that's exactly what all the entrepreneurs said that i interviewed for this book and for those of you who might not have a chance to look at it it's got like you know almost 30 examples in there of which Afik is mentioned as well but all of the entrepreneurs were like, we don't really use the word sustainability around here. They were almost allergic to it. They said, you know, what are we sustaining the current system, which is clearly not working. So when you look at semantics also, I mean, regenerative, the term gets its roots from regenerative agriculture, really, um, which is where it's used the most, I feel like. But it means to regenerate means to bring life into something like it means to truly bring and restore an ecosystem or even, you know, a plant or a human, whatever it may be. So I do think it's it's a different term. It's almost like it's 2.0 now, and, and we're kind of moving on to this next era of regeneration. One of the other questions that comes up a lot also in building these kind of companies is, can you scale and do these values? And how does it play out as you try to scale? So now that you're in you know two dozen countries around the world, what was that scale journey like? Because scale can often mean compromising quality or compromising values. Good question. I think I get this the most. Uh, yes, people assume the bigger you get, the uh, more you've had to compromise. And we've had plenty of examples where we've had the opportunity to say, oh, you know what, yeah, wrap it in plastic or actually don't worry about sourcing that ingredient. It's it's too hard. And we've all said no. And that takes a core foundation of values and that is why it's so important as I mentioned earlier to get people on board with why you are doing what you are doing because it is so it is easier to not do the right thing that's obvious that's why we are where we are um it is it, you've got to you've got to all be joined in that sort of foundation of values so that when you scale and things get hard it's worth doing so some examples have been, um, so palm oil is actually, you could argue, one of the worst business decisions I've ever made. Uh, so Atika has been certified palm oil free, I don't know, five, six years. Um, and prior to that, we, use, we, we tried to avoid palm oil as much as possible. But in the cosmetics industry, it's probably in about 95% of your products because it's your emulsifiers, your surfactants, so on and so forth. It's a hard thing to avoid. And I'm not saying a full global boycott is the answer either. It's a complicated issue. But for us, it was. Um, and as we've grown, as we've used more ingredients like fatty alcohols and things, it's it's become more and more difficult to find palm-free sources. However, the flip side is with scale, you then have power, right? So we have been able to go to man a manufacturer in Europe and say, we're going to buy 14 tons of this off you a year, but you need to make a palm-free option for us. And then we want you to make it available to the public too. And a company has done exactly that. So yes, it is easier to compromise and to devalue your values, but that scale does come with opportunities as well. And um, I think it's worth noting for those organizations that do sort of get a bit wobbly, your customers will notice and customers now care about this sort of thing more than they ever used to. And that's not a trend. It is a revolution. Consumers passionately care about people and planet. And it's not that they didn't before. It's that we know more now. We know how horrific the fast fashion industry is, for example. 
And uh, if if you start to whittle away things that they fell in love with, you will fast lose brand value. And that is something I think that uh, uh, investors and you know VCs and PE firms are finding out quite rapidly. Mm. Mm. And this segues really nicely into a question that somebody put in the chat is also a real pet peeve of mine, which is greenwashing, because, um, you know, we've used this term for so long, sustainable, and now it's almost like it just doesn't have much meaning because so many brands are using it as more marketing than action. You know, the question is, how does a consumer kind of weed through all of that marketing and find the brands that are truly doing it? Um, Have you found anything helpful in that approach? really hard actually and it's frustrating as and it's frustrating on both stands for me because I mean again I'm not saying a teaker Incredibles is, is perfect or Incredibles is going to be perfect um but what we will try and do is be as transparent as possible you know why we make these decisions when um organizations greenwash it, it gives them an advantage in the market that a company doing the right thing doesn't have a lot of companies will uh greenwash unintentionally and the eu is making efforts to clamp down on things like saying eco-friendly as a as a generic catch-all term or a good for the planet and i mean i I guess that's somewhat helpful but i think if you're a consumer and you're trying to find out if a brand really is doing the right thing the best thing you can do is ask them and ask them for proof if they don't have a certification ask them for proof that's so easy to say because we don't all have four million time, you know, all all the free time in the world to, to go and ask every brand we buy something off if you know what they're saying on the package is true. So I think, and it's unusual for me to say this, but at some point government regulation really needs to step in a little bit more here. You would know a lot more about this than I would, but it's it's a minefield. Oh. I think you said it perfectly. I mean, it is a matter of being proactive and asking questions. I also find that brands that are just willing to share so much more detail usually are already on that journey. Um, But it's great to see like in the EU, for example, you know, there's certain language with offsets and carbon neutrality that is going to be pretty much regulated starting next year. And that's gonna prevent brands from being able to make claims that they're carbon neutral, which some brands are doing through insetting, if you're familiar with carbon insetting, but other brands are doing it largely through offsets. And some of those offsets are good. And as many we've heard, many of them are not so good. So, I mean, this is a really challenging thing. And even as a journalist, like I get pitched every single day, countless brands that claim to be sustainable. And you do have to just kind of dig through the weeds, which is why I crafted the book. Um, And Chris, I think you asked, where can we buy your book? Um, You can buy it on all places. You can buy books in the world. So Amazon, unfortunately, not the most regenerative option. Maybe find a local bookstore. Um, And I think Stephen can help you in New Zealand if you're in New Zealand, because he's been able to get a couple copies. Um, But, you know, so the book is actually designed in that way. It's like, here's stories of, you know, 25 companies that are really trying to do it correctly and trying to do the best that they can. Um, So use that as a guide if you want. There's examples in food, fashion, finance, travel, you know, all kinds of things. So you'll find stuff that will relate to your everyday life. Um, But yeah, you do have to do a fair amount of digging, unfortunately, I think. And then it segues into the second part of um, Jamie's question, which is like, how do we prevent this from happening with regenerative? Like that also turning into a buzzword, which sadly it's already kind of happened. I mean, you may have seen headlines with regenerative ag and large ag companies like Cargill and all now saying that they're going to do regenerative ag, which 
my take on it is I feel like the more scrutiny and the more media scrutiny of these um, programs and initiatives by large companies, I think the better, because it also forces them to actually reevaluate and then change their ways, perhaps, if they get enough um, negative feedback. But do you have any thoughts on that, Brianne? Like, how do we prevent regenerative also from going down the same road? Oh, we will do. Um, like everything, it will become a marketing buzzword. And I think that's a reality you may as well accept. And that's why I think we sort of need to shift it a little bit away from relying on words like sustainability or sustainable and regenerative and start going for deeper transparency and, and looking for those certifications or looking for um, independent reporting and, and whatever, because uh, it will be made into a, a marketing buzzword, unfortunately. And you're right, it has in, in many situations. Again, governments can make inroads here and, and again, the EU is, is working uh, to sort of help with that, with a blueprint for hopefully other countries. As an aside as well, anybody in Otatahi, I have Isha's book. Very happy to lend it and do like a little book lending library, but I do want it back. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 frustrating. What I think the key is is to educate consumers, and that's another big ask. Educate consumers, educate as many entrepreneurs and founders and business owners and board members and directors, same thing, and um, investors and shareholders everybody educate them as much as possible as to why this sort of thing is important so that instead of getting excited about seeing a buzzword we look deeper into what a company is doing and it becomes more about individual policies because there is no such thing probably and again you're going to be the um you're going to be the expert here there is no such thing as a genuinely fully regenerative organization probably as it stands right now because everything you do has impact uh, all you can do is tackle each aspect of your company and try and do more good than you do bad. And I, I think the best thing that a, a company can always start with is the supply chain. You imagine the difference you would make on a global scale if every business who bought supplies simply paid a fair for, price for it. It's something I get really irritated about. And you see a lot of organizations, and it's it's often nonprofits, it's things like zoos, or sustainability gurus and influencers or whatever. And they're they're selling these T-shirts that donate $10 to some charity, right? But they buy the bloody T-shirt for 15 cents that I've got a little bit ranty. <laughs> they are not paying a fair price for the T-shirt, for the labor, for the material that it's made out of. So they're inadvertently creating far more waste and drama and exploitation than they're solving in the first place. And this is, this is the mind shift that we need in the thinking when you are talking regenerative business whatever you want to call it and yes it's going to be bastardized for lack of a better term you've got to think about the whole thing I don't even think that answered your question sorry <laughs> I love it I love the rant um I mean this is this is hard work is basically what we're saying is that this is not something that's so easy to implement like the the companies that I found that are really successful often are medium-sized companies, which I think we would categorize ethic in. And these are visionally, you know, led by people like you who are really willed at the top to make this happen. But if you're working in a company where you just don't have that kind of leadership at the top, it's a much harder road to go down. Um, and that's, you know, where I think we need everybody's support. So whether you decide to start your own company or you decide to work within the organization that you're in, if you have that mindset 
good and the ability to influence your colleagues. I mean, that's also so impactful. We just need to get more and more people on this path. Um, somebody asked in the chat about ESG. Brian, what are your thoughts on ESG? Is it actually helping? I mean, there's been a fair amount of criticism of ESG right, lately. Look, I think like many things, best intentions, I think a lot of companies have just jumped on it to say that they have some kind of policies or procedures. Um, I don't have a lot to do with it uh, because it's not mm -hmm. something that Atik's ever like said, we haven't, this is what we do. Um, it's again, part of the foundation. So um, I am naturally relatively scathing, but I am also not an expert and I'm probably not a, not a fair judge. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we'll leave it at that. I mean, it's it's like it's like sustainability, right? I mean, it was like it was well intentioned, but I'm not sure exactly how helpful it's been if we look at it now. Um, I'm very two dimensional. They'll ask, you know, so we're, as part of our because Atik has been um, mostly sold to a, a private equity company, I still retain a shareholding, and um, we we have to fill out a questionnaire once a year, and um, but the questions are, are fine, but they're two D. And um, they're not sort of super long term. And I think that's the issue for me. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you brought up financing for your company. And that's another topic that is important because when you're building a regenerative business, who you decide to sort of go into a finance wedding with, you know, is, uh, is really important. I mean, some of these companies are self-funded, which is great, but not every company can be self-funded. So how do you think about financing for regenerative brands? And do you feel like we're actually moving the needle on impact investing now? A little bit like social enterprise, I don't like the term impact investing because I want it just to be investing, but, you know, idealism. Mm -hmm. Coming through. Uh, now I know that most VCs, PE funds will have a certain amount of their uh, investments allocated each year that must go into an impact group. A little bit like they also have to have um, female founders or, or something. They, they have uh, quotas of things that matter. But there are also just specifically investment investor groups that will invest only in impact groups and uh which is great it's definitely becoming more and more of a thing um what i wonder though is there is a lot less impact investment available right if we want this to become the dominant form of business we need normal normal investment into impact companies so I, what I hope is that eventually this becomes a trend is that investors see the value because purposely admission-driven companies grow faster, develop more loyalty for their customers, then are profitable faster. And I'm not making that up. Deloitte said it, not me. And uh, so why wouldn't you invest in them on, on that basis alone, even if you theoretically don't care about the impact? So what, whilst impact investing as a uh, subsection, if you like, is growing, that's great. Um, it's... I think it needs to go out of the niche and be that these businesses are badass businesses in their own right. So let's invest more mainstream money into them. So I, I funded it a couple of different ways, um, equity crowdfunding twice. And that was great because we had all of those early supporters who invested in the company because they love the values and they got to help a company grow. So it was like, as, as Anna Gunther would say, it's democratizing investment to people who wouldn't ordinarily get that opportunity. It was, um, I think, one of the best decisions we ever made for a teak. Mm. No, absolutely. Funding. 
And it just gives your customers, you know, an opportunity to be a part of that that journey also as you grow and you go further. Um, we've had a question come up that is about CSR. So I'm going to read this from Jamie. I sometimes work with businesses who will say to me, we need to do a CSR thing. Can you come up with something for us? This is obviously a flawed approach, but I sometimes struggle to know what to say to them to put people on the right path. That's any ideas, Brian? Like, how would you steer that conversation in a different direction? I think I would ask what it is they wanted from it. That's probably my answer to every question people ask. Um, what is it they're trying to achieve? And if they say to you, oh, we want to look good on such and such social media where we want to be able to say something on our website I wouldn't say oh well no I'm not doing it I'd say well that's great but that is going to hold you over for what three months what are you going to do long term and I would try and steer the conversation in the direction of um depending on what their answer is this is a good thing for your business to do not only for people and planet right this is the right thing to do for your business long term because the dinosaurs that don't care they won't be here in 10 years fingers crossed right uh, so I would probably have that conversation. And then I would say, what is the thing that matters the most to you? And what is the thing that matters the most to your customers? Uh, is it carbon emissions? In which case, let's start measuring them and let's put a plan in place for minimizing and offsetting what we can't minimize. Uh, and just as an aside as well, for everyone who says you can't grow a company and um, uh, and minimize your investment, Atik grew 300, uh, 300% year on year and minimize its emissions 61% and 62% respectively in like 2018, 2019. We still continue to do it, but those are our best stats. So it's it's doable. Uh, but I would, if I was looking to put in a, a CSR thing for someone, I'd had that conversation with them. I then look at supply chain because I think that's the biggest bang for buck. It's something that's that little bit marketing friendly if they are aiming in that direction, but it's also something that will make a real difference. Mm. That would be a yeah. frustrating question. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, it's also an opportunity, right? To show them that you can create, maybe it's a smaller project to begin with, but then that project um, can scale in the company. And I think what you've been sort of saying over and over again about the profitability is so important. Like people need to stop looking at this as like a do-good activity. There was social entrepreneurship and then there was, you know, there was an era when this was really kind of more in the civil society nonprofit sector. I think we've graduated from that. Like this is really something that a business can do, make it profitable, make it work as a business would. But it's also this question of like, how much is enough with your profits? How much is enough with CEO compensation, uh, you know, executive level compensation? Because that's all gonna have a ripple effect for the rest of the company as well. I mean, if you wanna make it equitable, you have to kind of spread the wealth out, whether that goes into supply chain or people. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I mean, the thing that like, I loved your rant earlier, but my rant would just be on like CEO compensation. I mean, it just drives me up the wall when I see the discrepancy between what the worker is making and what the executives are making. Yeah, it's it's gross. Uh, I think it's a B Corp question actually. It's um are your is your lowest paid staff member with uh, are they paid within seven times what the CEO is paid? Um it, which I don't know who came up with that number, whether that's a good ratio, I'm not an economist. Uh but it's it's you do see pay packets online. I mean, um, CEOs in, in Europe paid, you know, upwards of $50 million a year and appreciate some of its bonuses and shares and it's not just cash, but it's it's gross. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that businesses who are uh, looking to take a truly regenerative approach, they do need to look at their compensation. Living wage should be a bare minimum. And I get pushback on that a lot because people will say, well, my business would go out of business if I had to pay my staff a living wage. As harsh as this sounds, maybe you need to look at your business structure because why should a business succeed off the back of someone else's labor if they are not fairly compensated and therefore can't live? I, I get a little bit of, of um, heat for that comment, but I, I truly believe if your business is not living wage certified. And also, I mean, how much are you making and are you willing to adjust, you know, that ratio, which often yeah. is the case. So yeah. um, I, well, um, I think we do approach these sorts of things a little bit backwards. You know, a lot of companies will wait till you know, they've got a billionaire, a billionaire as their core shareholder, and then they'll be like, "Okay, we'll give back to the community now." Well, how about you give back on the way up? Yeah, how about you do the right thing the whole way through? Um, we are at the the halfway or more than a halfway point. So, if anybody has questions, feel free to pop them in the chat. I'm also scoping through the chat for questions. Um, we'd love for this to be an interactive discussion as much as possible. I have a question. Uh, you, yeah. Go ahead. You've obviously done a buck, a bucket load of research. So who, what what do you find that companies are doing well in the regenerative space? And is there anything collectively they are struggling and finding difficult? So that's two um, questions. What they're doing well, the ones that are doing it well, I think they're doing really well on the supply chain front and on you know improving their supply chains, their materials. There's a lot of innovation in that happening and there's a lot of excitement around that. What they're struggling with is financing. I think it's still such a challenging thing and it depends from industry to industry also. But for example, if you're in fashion, D2C brands today require so much more capital than they did 10 years ago because digital marketing has become like 10x more expensive basically. So for these brands to be able to grow in a way that's true to their principles, and if they're going to take the regenerative approach, it's hard because they can't compete with the VC funded startups that come out. And then like within six months, right, you see them everywhere. They're in every newspaper, every magazine and every store. And how is that being funded? You know, that that's a lot of capital that's required for all of that to happen. So I think funding is still a real challenge because when we look at some of the legacy brands that might be considered, you know, somewhat regenerative, whether it's like a Patagonia or so, it's taken them a long time to do that. It's not been something that they've achieved in like three to five years. So I think that conversation around finance is still a struggle for many of them. In fact, I've had them, you know, tell me that when they've decided to go down this slower path and just build based on cash flow and sales and profit, you know, even like their bankers and people have come to them and said, are you sure you really want to do that? I mean, is that really the approach you want to take? And then of course, it does make it hard because when you're in an industry that's really powered by marketing, how do you compete? Because you just don't have those marketing dollars sometimes. Um, so then you're, you're basically focused. I mean, in a way it makes you stronger because you're focused on your product. Your product really has to be good and people have to want it and that will drive growth. Um, but it is hard. I mean, it is definitely, I think, hard. So. That is really interesting. We did the dance with a lot of VCs and a lot of P, well, mostly VC funds. Um, and because it was obvious we were values lead and I was values lead, they would always, um, approach they would start with that and then you'd get into the the nitty-gritty with them and it turns out actually that was just a facade so you weed them out 
Um, and eventually who we ended up with, um, they have a, a um, they have a really strong focus on sustainability that I believe is really genuine. Uh, they've never tried to change any of the tech's values. And uh, they also have a big offshoot in terms of um, ocean foundation health and donations, which is why we why we chose to go with them. But I, a question I have, I suppose, is, is VC money inherently unsustainable? The banking industry, finance industry, by and large, right, we fund bloody fossil fuels to the tune of like, what, $975 trillion a year. They're not actually sustainable without that, which yeah. is mad but um what i guess i'm i'm saying with my with my conversation around the, the finance point is is taking money from bad sources to do good things good bad or neutral because eventually will you just move those bad sources into more good things that's what i mean about the idea of taking vc or whatever cash from less impact focused organizations do you know what i'm trying to say it's it's a really yeah absolutely. Topic. I think the issue is not so much so like trying to get people that are doing the wrong work to do the right work sort of thing, but it's more about what the expectations come with that. So if they're going to push you for exponential growth and compromising your values in the process, then that's where the tension is, which is what has generally been the trend, unfortunately. I mean, I've seen brands who have even gone with more ethically minded VCs or VCs who are interested in sustainability. And yet, you know, they've said, okay, well, can you move your manufacturing from, you know, Portugal, for example, to Asia, because it'll be cheaper. And so they're like, we'll change your supply chain, because it's just going to make it easier for all of us. Um, so when you take on capital, and then you're put on this kind of hamster wheel, you know, where you just have to be thinking about growth, 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 so that you can sell the company five to seven years down the road, or get it acquired or whatever. I think it's that model that people are struggling with, which is, this growth scale model that has been really fed into us and really championed by the tech industry, right? Um, which doesn't necessarily have sustainability inherently in it. I mean, can you have infinite growth with finite resources? It's Definitely hard. not. Cannot. <laughs> so, um, so that's that's more of the the challenge there. I think I saw a question in here about. Um, I think you can answer this one, Brianne, because this is specific to New Zealand, but um, Ben Smith wrote that it's taken us 20 years to get our first AD facility in New Zealand. We've set up four social responsible trusts, but still face media copyright in New Zealand to tell our story. What are your thoughts on minimizing New Zealand's backwards attitude? Do you feel like there is a backwards attitude? Um, I'm sorry, I don't totally understand the question. Okay. We'll skip that one then. Ben, if you're in there, if you want to clarify. Yeah, we'll could you back. clarify for me, Ben? Sorry, I'm obviously being stupid this morning. It's not even really this morning anymore. <laughs> um, then somebody asked, what do we think about UN Sustainable Development Goals? Are they still relevant? Are we going to achieve any of them? Say that again, Brian. Are we going to achieve any of them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, I think goals are great. And I think they're, um, I think a lot of people are working very hard on them. Um, I, I the ones I'm sort of particularly interested in, you know, ocean health and life below the ocean and, and stuff. My understanding is we've made some inroads towards that goal, but we won't be hitting that goal per se. Uh, but the fact that they're there in the first place has probably engendered some movement towards it. Yeah, uh, encompassing the 30 by 30, uh, protecting 30% of the ocean by, by 2030, we have not 
got very long to go, but um, look, I think they have merit, like a lot of things like that. I don't hear them talked about very often outside this sort of circle, though. I agree. I agree. I don't think if you ask, you know, if you ask somebody, what is the youth and sustainable development goals? I don't think you're going to get a very clear response on that. Um, there was a question from Christy regarding accepting capital. Is it a when people know better, they do better kind of moment? AKA a sincerity and alignment of shared values and ethos looking forward. Do you think, have you seen that happen in your journey, Bram, where like people kind of had an aha moment, like as if they've learned now that they can do better. And so they actually do kind of pivot and go down that road. Oh, totally. Uh, there's loads of examples where businesses that have worked with us have changed. And the example I almost always use, because it's the biggest, is that which, um, uh, we used to be distributed in the States by um, the, the largest ph online pharmacy. So they had a massive warehouse run by robots and they changed it to be a plastic-free one. Uh, and that was a monumental, I think, an 18-month undertaking for them. And they only did it because um, of, it wasn't that they wanted to please us because we were, I don't know, not a huge part of their business, but because they saw the benefit in explaining the why, why this is important, why this matters for your future children, why this matters for the planet. <clears throat> Choking. And um, they got that, and then they put in a bucket load of effort to actually achieve it. So yeah, when when you meet the right people, even if they aren't on board with the values that you hold, you and your business hold, if you keep chipping away and nagging away and to quote people who constantly call me unreasonable, keep being unreasonable, then I think the change you can make is quite significant. Uh, you'd, mm. you'd be surprised. Um, and in terms of finance and in terms of that cycle you do have, you know, um, VCs will typically want you out within the four to five year mark so that they can make a massive return. Uh it is not impossible to grow ethically to meet their demands, but it is really important to ensure that you know what their uh, requirements will be going up front. And that's mm. why we talked to so many VCs and said no way more than we ever said. Well, we said yes once. So, mm. Going back to that example of the warehouse being plastic free, that is such a necessity across industry. So we complain about the plastics that we see as consumers, which is largely packaging, right? But as someone who's gone and visited a lot of factories, I can tell you if they could change this stuff at the factory level, the amount of packaging and plastic that is used there, I mean, just plastic wrapping every pallet, right? Endlessly. Um, it's really heartbreaking. And you realize even in the fashion industry, like we talk about, you know, not buying too many clothes and all of that, but it's really textile waste at the manufacturing level that is just massive. And so brands that are really working on that, I think are also really interesting because they're not doing the CPG model or the consumer facing but they're actually tackling some of the root issues that are far, you know, more impactful perhaps in certain cases. Right, so um, you know what they're called? Um, they've developed a genuinely home compostable pallet wrap, which has just been approved for export out of Australia. So if you export amazing. stuff, go and have a, I'm pretty sure they're called sugar wrap or sweet wrap or something. Okay. But we'll good home compostable pallet wrap, it's brilliant. Um, we have a nice closing question from Ani. It's um, what type of incentives do you think will help more regenerative businesses or people becoming more regenerative, I'm assuming, on their journey? 
I think it's the same old thing. I think it's proof that this is the way to make your business more successful. People go into business to solve problems, but they also want to make a return, right? At the end of the day, everybody wants to stop struggling to pay their bills because the living crisis is making that more overt, obviously. If you can get people across the hurdle to understand more and more and more that actually regenerative business is just good business, is just business as it should be, and it is good for you, the planet, the people, the shareholders, everybody, then I think that's incentive enough. But it's just getting rid of that pervasive belief that you can't have both. And that will just take a little bit of time and a little bit of chipping away, which is what I keep trying to do. So the more the more we um, we share that collectively as a group, I really do think the more we'll move the needle. The fact that companies like Unilever invest in it and the fact that they are the only CPG company that are growing 30% or when I read their book, 30% year on year, that tells you an awful lot. It's not that their brands are necessarily any more beloved. Well, actually it is, but it's because they have those values behind those brands and because they are uh, working on doing business a bit differently. I'm I'm not saying they're perfect, but fun to watch. I think the next generation is also really demanding it. So if if businesses are smart, they will get on this now because as that generation ages, I think it's only going to compound. So it's in their interest. One quick anecdote I'll share with you is one of the companies in the book, it's called Falcon Coffee. They're out of the UK. The gentleman who runs it, Conrad, he told me that one of the surprise benefits they've had has been they have less turnover because people love coming to work and that makes them save so much money every year with trainings, HR, all of that. Um, and because he's flexible and he's willing to work around their needs and their schedules as well. So there's incentives from a financial standpoint and from making business just easier to do and operate that hopefully will get more people on the regenerative bandwagon. But I think we're out of time. This was lovely. If any of you all want to connect afterwards, you can find us on the internet, on LinkedIn and social media and all the platforms. So we'd love to hear from you. And thank you to Stephen, if he's in here, for this lovely chat that we had today. Thank you, everyone. I'm sorry I haven't read comments, questions. I can't read and talk at the same time, but have your (laughs) wonderful rest of your day. Thank you very much, Isha and Brienne. I I hope you keep being unreasonable and going on rants. That was a really enjoyable talk. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Esha and Brienne. There was certainly lots of ground that they covered. And if you enjoyed that, then why not check out some of the other sessions that came up during the Seeds conference? Until next time, kakiteano.